please bow with me before our great Heavenly Father. Father, we come to you once again as your people. And Lord, it may not look like much from an earthly perspective. Lord, not many of us are great, even in the eyes of the world. And yet, we are even far less great in your eyes, in and of ourselves. Yet in Christ, you have made us, given us a status far above rulers and and the greatest person in the eyes of the world. Lord, you have given us the status of your Son in Christ. So Lord, we come to you today aware of our sin, of our guilt, of our shame, and also aware of the glory and righteousness and honor that you have heaped upon us immeasurably in Christ. And in that way, we come to you. That's what we mean when we say we come in the name of Jesus. Lord, we ask that you would cause us to grow together as one body in Christ by your word. Lord, we, we plead for that. We pray for that. Lord, we are, we are weak. We are sinful. In and of ourselves, we have the things in our hearts that will destroy our fellowship. But Lord, we pray that you would subdue our sin and through your spirit, give us love for one another that will bind us together in Christ, that we may be one person in Christ. We may be the body of Christ. Lord, give us unity around your word, around your gospel, that we may live in such a way amongst one another that it is clear that you, Father, have loved Christ and you have sent him that your love for us may be known. Lord, we thank you that the church has called another pastor to work in this church as well, striving for the advancement of your gospel, striving to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Lord, we pray that you would prepare us as a body to, uh, to submit and to grow and to learn from him. Lord, help us to uh, have realistic expectations. Help us to, as a church, learn from, from others. And that we would, the, the point would not be who is teaching us, but the point would be your word and how that shapes us and grows us together as your people. Lord, prepare us for that. Lord, we ask that you would uh, increase the giving to be able to support the position very quickly. Lord, we pray that we would actually be able to use our savings to, to further the gospel in another endeavor because we've been able to add enough uh, of our regular giving to support the position. Lord, we pray for that, trusting that you can do anything. Lord, you own all the resources in the entire world. All the resources come from you. So, Lord, we pray that you would supply what this church needs. Lord, we ask for those who are not with us this morning, particularly those who have coveted together to be one body together, but for various reasons aren't able to come. Lord, we pray that you would bring those who are sick, who are suffering back with us, that they would be able to worship with us. And Lord, for those who just have chosen not to come, Lord, we pray you would convict them of not assembling together with their brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, help them see the urgency of their need to gather together and worship you. Lord, that this is something you have told us that we ought to do because it is for our good that we need it. So, Lord, help us to understand that. Help us to reach out to those who, have, who are struggling and who are falling away. We pray that we would be obedient to your word by encouraging one another as we grow together in one body in Christ. Lord, as we turn our attention to your word, Lord, prepare us for this difficult, difficult passage. Father, help our hearts to 
receive what you have here to say in, in your word for us. Lord, help us understand the, the meaning of why your Holy Spirit inspired this for our instruction. Lord, let us be sober as we read this. Help us to apply it to our lives. We need your help, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen to a story is to play a part in it, to take sides, to say yes or no, to move one way or another. That's from the book Day by Holocaust survivor Elie Wiesel. He's not commenting on the Bible in particular, but as I read that quote this week, I thought to myself, that is exactly the effect that the passage for us this morning has upon us. This is a story that we cannot just approach uh, neutrally, idly, and go on our way without having it have some effect in our lives. The passage for this morning, if you've read it ahead of time, is one of, of horrific brutality. It is, it is a sad day for the nation of Israel. And as we read this story, we're confronted with that pain and shame and horror of it. And we pray that, as I pray, that that would, that's inspired by God for a reason, that it would help us, instruct us in how we ought to go. I'm going to read Judges chapter 19, and then we'll talk about it. Technically, the sermon is going to cover through 21. I'll make some allusions to what happens towards the end. But primarily for this morning, we're going to focus on chapter 19. So follow along with me, if you will, in your Bibles in front of you. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning, that means wandering around, in a remote part of the hill country of Ephraim. He took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and was there some four months Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys. She brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay and remain with him for three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day, they arose early in the morning and he prepared to go. But the girl's father... He said to his son-in-law, Strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together, and the girl's father said, Be pleased to spend the night and let your heart be merry. So when the man rose up to go on the fifth day, he rose up early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, Strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So he ate, both of them. So they ate, both of them. And when the man and his concubine and the servant rose to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, the day has waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry. And tomorrow you shall rise early in the morning and go on your journey and go home. But the man would not spend the night. He arose and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, that is, Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddle donkeys, and his concubine was with him. When they were near Jebus, the day was nearly over, and the servant said to the master, Come now, let us turn aside to this city, to the Jebusites, and spend the night in it. And the master said to him, We will not turn aside into a city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah, 
And he said to his young man, Come, let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or Ramah. So they passed and went on their way. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in to spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down on the open square of the city, for no one took them into the house to spend the night. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjamites. And he lifted up his eyes, and he saw the travelers in the open square. And the old man said, Where are you going, and where do you come from? And he said to him, We are passing from Bethlehem in Judea, in Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, from which I came. I went to Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going on to the house of the Lord, but no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys and bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young man who was with your servants. There is no lack of anything. And the old man said, Peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night out in the square. So he brought them into his house and gave the donkeys feed. And he washed their feet and ate and drank. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now, violate them, and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the man would not listen to him. So the man, that's the Levite, seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. As morning appeared, the woman came out and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until light. Until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the door of the house and went out on his way, behold, there was his concubine laying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let's be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey and made... And the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his home, he took a knife. And taking hold of the concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces and sent her throughout the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. I think... Wiesel's counsel is right. We can't hear this story and then be the same afterwards. I've listened to or read this story probably over a hundred times this week, and every time it feels like a punch in the gut. It's shaky. It affects me. It affects you as well, I'm sure. I couldn't get out of my mind the fact that this was a real experience. This is not make-believe. This happened to a real woman, actually a girl, as we will see. And I can't help but think that this isn't just something we can confine to the history books. Oh, yeah, that happened back then. But, you know, that, that this reality, this hellish night, 
is what millions and millions of women and girls experience today. I think the first thing that this passage should do is cause us to thank God that he actually addresses the darkness that is in our lives. This world can be a very, very dark place. It is kind of God to reveal his word to us when he communicates to us to reveal that he speaks into that darkness, that he knows about that darkness. Here I might offend some people, but I think the Bible does so much better of a job touching that darkness than many Christians do today. Much film and art that is supposed to be Christian, I think is actually sub-Christian because it paints kind of everything with rose-colored glasses. I think of a a popular Christian artist and all the, the pictures are just glowing. Where do we deal honestly with the brokenness of the world, with the pain, with the sadness, with the loss? And much preaching today isn't much better. Today, preachers often promise health, wealth, and prosperity. I heard a story of one preacher telling a group of farmers, you want a new cow? Go look in your backyard. It's already there. As if God just promises to bless us with physical blessings and prosperity and health. And if we're following the Lord, oh, it'll all be wonderful and fine. Well, it's not what we see in Scripture. In the end, it will be wonderful and fine, but along the way, there will be pain, there will be suffering, and there will be loss. The Bible deals honestly with that. We live in a world where the Holocaust actually happened, where 125,000 unborn children die in abortions every day. We live in a world where It's hard to say exactly, but approximately a third of all women and many men have experienced something like what this woman experienced. Praise God that he touches that darkness. He speaks into our world. The question is, what does he say? What does this passage say to us that we can take into those dark nights, that we can speak to the people who experience those dark nights? Well, let's first spend a little bit of time thinking about what is going on in this story. It is hard, but we must do that. We're introduced at the beginning to a Levite. He has no name, and probably that's to indicate that he's kind of representative. This is what Levites were like back then. The Levite is supposed to be the religious leader. He's supposed to be the one who's teaching people God's law, but this Levite has no concern for God's law. First of all, he has a concubine. Now, what does that exactly mean? Well, honestly, it's kind of hard to tell. It's hard to tell because it seems like the family structure is so utterly broken that it doesn't really mean much of anything. Uh, Often the concubine would be considered the unofficial second wife of a person or third wife, but there's no evidence that he has a first wife. Uh, Sometimes in this passage, the man, the Levite, is called her husband. Other times he's called her master. I think the best way to understand who she is to this man is kind of like a live-in prostitute. And the Bible doesn't actually call her a woman. He he calls her a girl. Think a teenager, a teenage living prostitute. How does she end up there? We don't know for sure. I think the most likely scenario that would explain it is that the, the girl's father received a large sum of money or a sum of money from the Levite in order for... Uh, him to take her. I think that because of the way the Levite interacts with the girl's father and the fact that the family seems poor. The text says that she is unfaithful to him. It seems as if the act of unfaithfulness is actually her leaving. 
But given that they're not technically married, it's hard to say exactly what that actually meant in terms of what God's law would be to that. Again, the problem is that the family structure is so broken that that it doesn't really fall into any clear categories. But for whatever reason, he misses her, and after four months, he goes and he says he will speak kindly to her. Literally, the text says there, he's going to speak to her heart. Nice idea, intention. Problem is, he doesn't actually do that. We read in this passage that there is a lot of speaking to the heart that goes on here, but all of it is from the girl's father to the Levite. The Levite, the girl's father here is horrible. He's not doing what is in the best intentions of his daughter. I think probably he sold his daughter in the first place, and then the man who he sold her to comes back, and and he's not protecting his daughter. He's speaking kindly, being a buddy to this man. He says to, her, to him, come, let your heart be merry. Stay and strengthen your heart. He's, he's bringing them in there. They're watching football games together and playing cards. The girl's father is offering him above and beyond the normal hospitality. There's something wrong here. Fathers are supposed to care for their daughters, not use them for their own gain. Think about what's happening under this roof and think about uh, it's got to be one of the creepiest family gatherings there could possibly be. You think your Christmas might be awkward? This is really awkward as the girl's father is there talking to the person who she, he has sold her to. Finally, the man decides that it's time to leave. Only they leave too late in the day, so they have to stay somewhere overnight. They decide not to go to Jerusalem because that is far and occupied, and they don't think they will have a good reception there among foreigners. Bit of ironic foreshadowing there, isn't it? Given what ends up happening in the end, do you think they could have possibly had a worse reception anywhere else? I don't think so. They go to Gibeah, and no one will let them into their home. Now, that defies the normal custom of hospitality. In those days, you would let people into into your home. That's what people did. But they're forced to stay out in the town square. So they're out in the town square. It's night is approaching. An old man sees them there, comes up to them, and says... What are you guys doing out here? Apparently, there is something lurking in the darkness of Gibeah they know not of. The man says, the old man says to the man, Peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. It's telling here and very, very significant that he promises peace only to the man. The word you there, I believe, is singular. There's peace, and that's the word in Hebrew, shalom. Everything is right. Everything is good. This old man, this old farmer, offers it to the man, the Levite, not the woman, not anybody else. So the old man takes them back into his house. And once again, their hearts are merry. I picture the two of them having drinks and playing cards, doing something, enjoying themselves. And then there's a pounding at the door. Bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. What's going on there? What's going on there is violence against the other. It is the us-against-them mentality where the new person is suspect. The new person is treated poorly, is exploited, is abused. That's why in places in, in this country there were lynch mobs. That's why one day I was walking down a street in a city far away and a man came up to me and assaulted me and told me to go home. It's violence against the stranger, the other, the one who doesn't belong there. 
We see this happen again and again. People show preference to their clan, their tribe, and they reject the other, the foreigner. Let me just say as an aside, may the church be the place where that doesn't happen? Friends, what ought to bind us together as believers is not our tribal affiliations. It's not our loyalty to our close friends. It's not the people who look like us, who have the same education as us, who talk like us. No, what binds us together is our shared loyalty of Christ. So the church ought to be a place where somebody new can come, and it's not just that they feel welcome. It's that they feel it is a place to which they can belong. It shouldn't be a place where we can take somebody in as a member, but they aren't really a member until they've done such and such or gotten to know so and so. We shouldn't have an in crowd and an out crowd. We shouldn't have an old guard that circles to protect themselves. No, we should practice hospitality, which is commanded in Scripture. And the word hospitality means in the Bible, love of stranger. So the older members, which I define as you weren't the last one who we took in. How are you treating the younger members? Do you make it a point to to come to them, to embrace them, to bring them in as part of the church family? Now back to our story. To the old man's credit, he goes out of the house and he says to this mob, do not act this way since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. The vile thing there is hurting the people, the person rather, who he has sworn to protect. In one sense, this old man is showing hospitality. He is loving the stranger. But there is something perverted about it because he's sworn to protect only the man. Therefore, what comes out of his mouth is torturous to our ears. He offers his own daughter and the man's concubine. Behold, here they are. Violate them and do to them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. The irony there is that he calls that thing outrageous, yet he offers a scenario that I think is even more outrageous. Don't get me wrong, mob violence to a stranger is really bad. But a father offering his own virgin daughter to a group of deranged men to do what seems good to them is sick. And the fact that this idea would even enter his mind shows how crazy he is. We should, however, be a little bit slow to judge. Because we don't know what is truly in our own hearts until the danger strikes us. We don't know what we would have done if we were in that house and heard the pounding on the door and the danger arose. Sometimes in crisis situations, people rise up and protect others. Other times in crisis situations, people are willing to sell out anybody and everybody in order to stay safe. Perhaps this father, after reflection, is equally horrified at the words that came out of his mouth. Don't we sometimes say things and think to ourselves, where in the world did that come from? But friends, we know exactly where it came from. It came from our hearts. The hearts that are prone towards selfishness. The men of the city don't want to listen to this old man. So, the Levite, verse 25, seizes his concubine and made her go out to them. Now, you have to understand what's going on here is that inside the house is the place of rest, the place of shalom, the place of peace. The Levite forces his concubine out of the house. She goes out where it is dangerous. And the text says they violated her and abused her all night. One author writes, 
If ever a human being endured a night of utter horror, it was she. The Bible stresses that this was at night. Three times it talks about how they did this all night until the sun came up. Night is when people often do their evil deeds under the cover of darkness because they think they're wrong, but they think no one sees. We find out later that she collapses on the doorsteps with her hands on the threshold. What's going on there? She's trying to get back in. She wants in the place of peace, the place of shalom. She wants to get in that place of rest. But that entrance into shalom is denied to her. She must stay outside. The Levite gets up in the morning. He sees her there, lying on the doorstep. Get up. Time to be going, he says. This is the first words that he has actually spoken to her. I seriously hope this is not what he meant when he intended to speak to her heart, speak kindly to her. But she doesn't hear him. Probably good. She is unconscious. However, the text does not say that she has died. He takes her on his donkey. They go back home. And then he dismembers her. He cuts her into 12 pieces and sends her all throughout Israel. The final act shows that to him she is simply a body. A body to be used for his pleasure, a body to be used for his protection, and finally, a body to be used for his revenge. He sends her body parts all over Israel with the message, consider her. It's it in your Bibles, but it's a a feminine object there. Consider her. Take counsel about her. Speak. Never in Israel has something like this been done before. He sends that message to condemn the Benjaminites who did that, but... We who know the full story realize that his words condemn himself. He is just as guilty as they are, perhaps more so. Now, having thought about this passage, let's ask a couple of questions. First, what is the cause of it? We see the evil. There's no denying it. What is the cause of it all? Well, look back in verse 1. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And then if you flip over to the end of, verse, of chapter 21, it says... There is no king in Israel. And then it says, and every man did what is right in his own eyes. See, here's what happens when there's no right authority. There's people do what they want. The man says to the mob, do what seems right to you. And friends, whenever we define right and wrong based upon our own eyes, based on what we think apart from God's authority, people suffer. Women and young girls suffer in particular. You see, God had planned, does plan, to give men a kind of authority in marriage. Not over women in general, but within marriage. But that authority is, so, is not so they may do what is right in their own eyes, use women for whatever advantage seems good, good to them, but rather they may serve their wives. Listen to the words of Peter. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since you are joint heirs of the grace of life. People struggle with what it means there when it says weaker, but I think the passage in Judges makes it really clear. It's the woman who gets sold for her body, it's the woman who gets thrown to the mob, and it's the woman who gets mutilated. The men in this story use their position of power and authority to make women serve their own interests but they should use their position of power and authority to serve the interests of the women. Paul tells husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, 
We are not supposed to give our wives up to serve ourselves like the Levite did. We are supposed to give ourselves up to serve our wives like Christ did. I want to read you a part of a sermon that I heard 10 years ago that convicted me in this area. I went back yesterday and listened to it. And this is what a pastor challenges husbands to do. He says this, Husbands, love your wives with gentleness and tenderness, carefully so as not to wound. Love them in a way that takes initiative to understand them and meet their needs. Christian husbands, are you loving your wives? Are you exercising your leadership and authority in such a way that is, your wife is flourishing, and in particular, flourishing as a Christian? When was the last time you took initiative in your wife's life to, to ask her how she's doing spiritually and emotionally and made a decision that touched her in that area of her life? When was the last time you initiated a conversation with your wife about spiritual things? When was the last time you said, I think we need to pray? Husbands, do you know what your wife's greatest fear is? Do you know what is her most cherished hope? How can you lead her if you do not know? Husbands, do you have any goals for your marriage? Goals other than having more sex and fighting less? How can you lead her and love her if you don't have goals in your marriage? Husbands, love your wives. Man, this is a tall order. Let us encourage one another. We can't do this alone. Let us hold each other accountable and encourage one another in how we're doing in loving our wives. But friends, our own effort to change will not be enough. This passage says that the problem is that everyone did what is right in their own eyes because there was no king. That begs the question. Perhaps if there was a king, would everything be made right? But we need more than just any king. We need a righteous king. The book of Judges tells us that we cannot have an immoral king, immoral king like Samson, or a power-hungry king like Gideon. That won't do. We can't either have a weak king like Barak either. We need a king who is strong, who will act in the best interest of his people. Well, friends, who is that king? Jesus. He has come. And friends, think about what Jesus did in comparison to what all the men did in this passage. Jesus, or the Son of God, to be precise, was in the place of perfect peace, perfect shalom. He was in heaven with his Father. It was safe there. No pain. But Jesus takes on a body. And friends, as we see the abuse that can happen to a body in this passage, we should realize that when we talk about the incarnation, Jesus coming and taking on a physical body, that in and of itself is a step in vulnerability. A step to open himself up to pain because of this pain that we can see happen to bodies in this passage. Jesus comes into our world and he experiences a night of terror and shame. Jesus is light, but he has come down into the world and men reject him because they love darkness rather than night because their deeds are evil. Jesus finds no shelter, no place to rest. The world hates him. And they violate his dignity and honor. And they do with him whatever seems good in their eyes. Think of how Jesus differs from the men in this passage. Jesus does not sacrifice those who are weaker than him to protect himself. 
No, Jesus chooses to become weak to protect the others. He chooses to become vulnerable. He goes out of the house into the streets and he does it for the very people who would cause him pain. Jesus leaves the place of shalom that others may get into that shalom, to that rest and be welcome. Jesus is at the door and he says, come to me. Jesus is called the door, our entrance into heaven. And he says, come to me and I will give you rest. Jesus lets us into the place of shalom because he was willing to go out and suffer. One Puritan prayer says this, Christ was all anguish that I might be all joy. He was cast off that I might be brought in, trotted down as an enemy that I may be welcome as a friend, surrendered to hell's worst that I may attain heaven's best, stripped that I may be clothed, wounded that I may be healed, a thirst that I may drink, tormented that I may be comforted, made a shame that I may inherit glory, entered darkness that I may have eternal light. Friends, if you've ever been abused or used, this Jesus can help you. Because if you've trusted in him as your only hope, then the most significant thing about your life is not what has been done to you, but rather what Jesus has done for you by taking the worst distress that you could possibly imagine upon himself. Not only that, what is significant about you is also what Jesus has done in you to make you a new creation, a new creature in his image in glory. Jesus dies for the church so that the so he would present the church as a pure, spotless, radiant bride. And friends, that's who you are in Christ. Jesus is the perfect husband who does not leave his bride out there to be ravished and bruised and bleeding, reaching for the house but not getting in. No, Jesus makes his bride spotless, radiant, pure, and clean. And friends, if you are in Christ, that is who you are. Friends, if you're here and you've been the abuser, this Jesus is also for you. One of my favorite teachers of the church today is a man named William Edgar. He was one of my professors. I heard him interviewing a, young wo- or a, a woman named Diane Langberg who had done research and uh, done a lot of work in, in talking with survivors of abuse. And he asked her the question, he said, what can we do Because at the end of the day, we're all just recovering abusers. And she replied, no, I don't think that's true. To which he responded, you're right, some of us aren't recovering. We've all seen that there is evil and darkness in our hearts. We objectify others. Some of us, to our shame, have turned to pornography for pleasure. We do things that put us in the same category as these worthless men. But the most amazing thing about Jesus is he comes not just to save the innocent, abused victim, because at the end of the day, none of us are truly innocent. No, this Jesus comes, and he welcomes those who've raised their fist against him. He welcomes you because he takes the punishment that you deserve. And as he welcomes you, he changes you. He makes you new. And friends, if you don't know this Jesus, I pray that you will know him. You will trust in him, as his death is the only way that you may find right 
relationship with God. Let's pray. Lord, we, we come to you having looked at a passage that sobers us. The, the evilness in our world is unbearable. Lord, help us, sustain us as we face it. Lord, give us compassion. We pray that one effect of this passage will be that we would have compassion on those who suffer, even if we don't ourselves suffer. And Lord, we would see that what Jesus underwent for us and the hope that he offers us is, makes the evil that we experience against us seem light and momentary. Lord, in the time that we experience, it is not light and momentary. And we thank you that you deal honestly with that evil. But then you present to us a joy inexpressible and full of glory that makes the worst acts in history seem momentary and light in light of the weight of glory that you have prepared us for. So, Lord, as we sing this song, looking at our happy home, the joy that you promise all those who are believers in Christ, Lord, let our hearts yearn for him and long for him and know him. And may we say with the church, come, Lord Jesus, because when you come as king, you will dry every tear. You will wipe every eye. You will make all that is sad and painful not true. And you will turn the world into the place of perfect rest, perfect peace, perfect shalom. We pray, Jesus, you would come and do that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.